Back when I was a kid, I remember my sister and I playing a game we called Opposite Day. The rules were simple. In fact, there was only one rule. Whenever we spoke to one another, we would have to say the opposite of what we really meant. Now, if memory serves, we didn't even have to be especially creative about it. It was enough to say, I am not going to get a bowl of cereal to eat for breakfast. Okay, please do not pour me one, too. Hey, that's a very large piece of coffee cake. Give me some less, please. Mmm, I really hate coffee cake, don't you? It's gross. Yes, I hate it, too. Then we'd pause, we'd have a discussion on whether it should have been, no, I hate it too, because would it be better to use both opposites, or was one opposite sufficient in that instance? Or we'd ponder whether or not the opposite of coffee cake was tea pie, and should we use that instead? (laughs) So cold was hot, quiet was noisy, and upstairs was downstairs, and everything was backwards until we grew tired of the game and gave it up. Now, why do I tell you this story? It's because we're about to turn to John chapter 12 and read what happened when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday. And as we read, if you're paying attention, you might start to wonder if Jesus thinks it's opposite day. Because he's going to do... And he's going to say a bunch of things that sound backwards. He's going to talk about shame, but he's going to call it glory. He's going to talk about exaltation, and he's going to mean disgrace and suffering. He's going to talk about how life comes when you die. And he's going to show that he's really the king through a display of profound humility. It's all going to feel very topsy-turvy. But then it ought to, really. That's actually how God tends to work. He works in ways that we find astonishing and, and unexpected, and then he says, ah, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways. So this morning I invite you to watch and listen as Jesus upends all of our expectations and then calls us to join him to forget about what makes sense to us and believe that he knows better. Because guess what? He does know better. So please turn in your Bibles now to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. If you're using one of the blue Bibles in the seats, you can find the passage on page 899. So we're looking for the book of John. Chapter 12, verse 12. That means that uh, you're looking for a big number 12. That's the chapter number. And then there'll be a little 12 somewhere in that chapter. That's verse 12. That's the verse number. Also, I'll I'll just mention that if you want to follow along, and get a help to follow along in the bulletin, you can uh, find an outline of the sermon, if that proves helpful to you. Let's start just by reading John chapter 12, 12 and 13. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees 
and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. All right, this is the week of Passover. We need some context. The week of Passover, which is the greatest feast of the Jews that celebrates how God delivered them from bondage in Egypt. Thousands and thousands of Jews, maybe over a million, from all over Palestine, and then even from beyond the borders of Palestine, have made their pilgrimage into the city. And by this time, Jesus has been in active ministry for three years now. So he's very well known. He's been teaching at feasts every time he comes to Jerusalem. He's been teaching in the Galilean countryside. He's been traveling wherever. He's been going to Samaria. He's a well-known quantity at this point. Many of these people believe him to be a prophet because of his teaching and his miracles. And more and more, people are beginning to suspect that he He's not just an ordinary prophet. He might, in fact, be the Messiah. A Messiah, God's promised king, the one that God promised as a savior who would come to deliver Israel. Now, Jesus has spent last night a few miles outside the city in the home of some friends, but now he's ready to come in and enter into Jerusalem And so word spreads. Word spreads from the crowds that are coming into Jerusalem. Word spreads among the people and inhabitants of Jerusalem and the pilgrims who are already there. So you've got a group of people coming from outside the city. And you've got a bunch of people coming from within the city. They're all coming out to meet Jesus. Because Jesus, the word is out. Jesus is on his way. And this huge, excited crowd, kind of two crowds merging like two hurricanes, they come out of the city to meet him. They swarm all around him. They're hopeful that this is going to be the start of something really big. Maybe the day has finally come. Is this going to be the day that Jesus leads Israel to rise up against the Roman occupation? Will God's people finally be free? Will a son of David establish his rule in the holy city once again. They hope so. So they begin hailing Jesus as God's king. They're waving palm branches. These are a symbol of the Jewish nation. They take the branches. There's lots of palms around Jerusalem. They, they cut branches off. They rush out to meet him. And they begin crying out, Hosanna, which is from Psalm 118. It means give salvation now. Give salvation now. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're acclaiming him as the one whom God has sent. And they call him Israel's king. So they've opened the gates and they're ready for the king of glory to come in and save them. And they're correct, of course. Jesus is God's king. Come to save. Come to be glorified. And their praise and their acclamation of him and their joyful celebration is completely appropriate. But there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect somewhere. We're moving through the story. We're going to see that the crowd and Jesus have very different perspectives on what's going on. The crowd's understanding is that Jesus comes in strength to save Israel, national Israel. But Jesus' own understanding is that he has come in humility, in humility 
to save the whole world. So read again at verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So Jesus now gives the first sign that he's going to overturn our expectations. He's arranged for a little donkey colt to be brought to him. And now he begins to ride, not on a great charger, not on a war horse. He begins to ride on a little donkey colt into the city in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9, one of the last prophets in the Old Testament. I'm going to take the time to read you that passage from Zechariah. You don't need to turn to it. But I want to quote the verse that... John quotes, but then also reads some of the context that's around it. This is what Zechariah says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you on a cult, on a, a humble... I'm sorry, I'm messing up the quote. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Friends, here's what's happening. Jesus knows this prophecy. And he chooses to come into Jerusalem in this manner because he's trying to tell us about the nature of his kingship. They are right that he is God's king. They're mistaken as to the nature of his kingship. Yes, the king has come to save. But the king's coming on a donkey's colt means he is coming in humility, not in pomp. And triumph. The king is also coming to preach peace to the nations, which means his saving rule is going to be extended beyond the borders of Israel to the ends of the earth, all the way to the ends of the earth, even to the Gentiles, maybe even to the hated Romans. Well, that surely can't be now, can it? From sea to sea, His rule extends from the river to the ends of the earth. He's reigning over all nations. 
And last, his setting Israel free will come about as a result of the blood of the covenant. What exactly that means, Jesus isn't explaining yet, but he's going to later, as he himself presents the blood of the covenant, his own blood, to the Father. So Jesus is God's king. The crowd doesn't understand the nature of his kingship. He has not come to drive the Romans out. He has not come to set up an earthly throne in Jerusalem. He has come in humility to save the world through the blood of the covenant. And not even the disciples understand this. They don't get it either. But but it says after Jesus was glorified, after that they did remember. And then they said, ah, that's what that was all about. That's what he meant. It's about the nature of his kingship. Well, despite the, all this deep misunderstanding, the crowd is still in this frenzy of excitement. They're escorting the king into the holy city. The Pharisees are standing on the sidelines, and they're watching it all. This is a party of the religious leaders, and for the most part, they fear and hate Jesus, and they reject all his claims. They, re- they think he's a false prophet and a, and, and a wicked man. They say to one another, boys, it's getting pretty dark. This is pretty hopeless. We don't seem to be able to win this one. See, the whole world is coming out to him. Yes, of course. These blind Pharisees speak better than they realize. Yes, the whole world is coming out to him. And what happens next? Some Greeks arrive. Some Greeks That just means they're Gentiles. We don't even know where they're from. Probably they're worshipers of the true God, of Israel's God, but they haven't converted to Judaism. They haven't yet become Jews through circumcision. So that means they can come to the feast, but they aren't allowed to fully enter Israel's worship in the temple. And they've come for Passover, and they've heard of this wonderful man. And and they approach Philip. Well, Philip's got a Greek name, for one, and he's got a hometown that's near to a Gentile area, so he makes a pretty good go-between. And they say, hey, can can we meet Jesus too? And Philip takes Andrew along, and and they, they go and tell Jesus. See, the whole world is going after him. See, Jesus continues to surprise. He's come to deliver the world, not just Israel. His dominion is going to extend to the ends of the earth. He comes as king to Jerusalem to save and be glorified. But he knows something that no one else does. That the salvation and the glory must come through the king's death. Let's pick up the reading at verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So for the first time, the man that's actually at the center of it all actually speaks. 
He looks around at all the hubbub and the celebration, and he starts, to anyone who can really hear, he starts explaining what's really going on. The hour has finally come. What hour is that? The hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. You know how it is when we're waiting for something big, we're waiting for something really important and significant. It could be something either good or bad, really. And you don't know exactly when it's going to happen. You just know it's soon. So you're watching, and you're going about, you're doing your other stuff, but you're staying on the alert. And then any time something happens, you hear something, you, you feel something, and you think, ha, is it time? And, oh, no, it turns out, nope, it's not yet time. That wasn't it. And so you go back to waiting. And there might be any number of these false alarms. I'm thinking of my wife when she was 41 weeks pregnant. Um, but then at last, it took you a while on that one, huh? Then at last you see the definitive sign. It's really come. It's really true this time. The hour has come. And that's what's happening here. See, John, throughout his book, has recorded other times in Jesus' ministry when it looked like events might be coming to a head. But then he says, no. His hour had not yet come. And so things settled down again. But it's different this time. This is the moment Jesus has been waiting for. There's no turning back now. It's now time for him to be glorified. And he explains that there are three wonderful things that are about to happen by which he will be glorified by which he will be glorified. The first, he going to bear much fruit. But here's where it gets topsy-turvy again. Because he says that this can only come about through his death. How can a grain of wheat produce a harvest? Only, only if it is planted in the earth. But what happens when a grain of wheat is planted in the earth? First it takes in water, and then it has to crack apart. Tiny roots emerge, and they start working their way down. And and the tiny shoot starts going up, and it starts working its way out to the surface. And then the shoot grows tall and puts out leaves and becomes a big stalk. And then it bears these tiny little flowers which get pollinated. Then kernels start developing. They grow and mature until you have this stalk of ripe grain with a head that's full to burst with new wheat seeds. But what happened to the original seed? It's died. It's dissolved. Its nutrients have all been spent to give life to the growing plant. But paradoxically, its death is its glory, isn't it? Because if it had not died, it would have remained alone. But in death, it has borne much fruit. And Jesus is saying, the same thing must happen to me that happens to that little seed. Soon I too must die, and my body must be planted as a seed in the earth. And if I do this, I will bear much fruit. And Jesus understands that it is in this way that he is going to be glorified. 
If he submits himself to the Father's will, if he willingly goes to the cross to lay down his life, then out of his death will come an abundant harvest of life. His one life will be multiplied in a thousand, thousand, thousand different lives. His death will result in salvation for untold millions of precious souls. And when that great harvest is gathered, and it becomes evident exactly how much fruit Jesus is born, then all of heaven and earth will glorify him, and every tongue will confess how worthy a Savior he is. How worthy a Savior he is that his death would produce such a glorious harvest, including many of you and I in this room. His sacrifice is vindicated by the fruitfulness. But then on the other hand, Jesus says, if I don't do this, if I don't embrace this path of death, I can't save anyone. It's dependent on him dying. And so he resolves. He will go on. He will complete his mission. And then he turns and he issues a call to the people around him. He makes clear to his hearers that he is setting a pattern that they also ought to follow. Now, there, it is true that his death is unique. His death, he alone is the sinless God-man whose death alone can redeem a dying world, right? We read in the catechism question, can just anybody die for anybody else? No way. No way. And yet, and yet... When the God-man dies, he sets a pattern. A similar principle holds for us as well. If we cling to our lives, and we're not letting to release them and lay them down in his service, if we keep choosing our own way, if we keep choosing our own way, and not his way, if we don't abandon the pursuit of self in order to pursue him, then we'll lose our lives. Young people, are you listening? If you will not abandon the pursuit of self, and if you will continue to choose your own way rather than his way, and will not give him your life and lay it down, you will lose your life. But if we are willing to give our lives in his service, we will keep them to eternal life. It's it's actually pretty simple. If we serve Jesus, we will follow him. And wherever he is, we will be too, wherever he goes. Now, where is he going? He's on his way to the cross and to death. And through death... He's headed to glory. We must do the same. We must walk closely in his footsteps. Since he walked the way of the cross, we must walk it right behind him. And as we join him in giving up our lives, as he gave his up, we will join him in glory and we will have a share of his glory. Because as he says in verse 26, what does he say? If anyone serves me, by laying down his life for me, the Father will honor him. Will honor him. Do you want to be honored by God? Serve Jesus Christ. Serve 
Jesus Christ. Give up your life for his life. But before any of this can happen, Jesus himself must die himself and be glorified. And even though the, the glory is going to be wonderful, and it really is going to be wonderful, the suffering is also going to be very, very intense. And the thought of the cross causes Jesus real distress. Read verse 27 with me. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Now that Jesus' hour is actually upon him, he's filled with dread. He knows exactly what the next few days hold for him. Today's Sunday, and he's coming into Jerusalem at the acclaim of the enormous crowd. Now, the first half of the week, he's going to spend it in teaching. But there's going to be fierce conflicts from the leaders who want to entrap him and discredit him because they hate him. And one of his own disciples is going to approach his enemies and make arrangements to betray him into their hands. Then on Thursday night, after Passover, he will be arrested and tried unjustly by a corrupt religious court and handed over to the Roman governor on Friday morning. And then the crowds will turn on him. And they will become a bloodthirsty mob baying for him to be crucified. They and their leaders will demand it. And he will be condemned and mocked and scourged, and led out of the city. And there on a hill, he will be nailed to a cross and lifted up to die. Those who hate him will stand there and revile him. But the physical pain, the deep, intense physical pain, the emotional pain of the insults and the abuse, none of this is the real problem that is in his mind. That's not why now... I'm troubled. Jesus knows that when he comes to die, the Father is going to forsake him. And God will place upon him the sin, all the guilt, the abomination of all the evil that God's people have ever committed. He is the sin bearer. God will fix all that guilt upon him, and then put his curse upon him. Yes, he'll put his curse even upon his own son. And Jesus will suffer the condemnation of God for our sins. The Father's fierce and holy anger will be turned toward him and consume him. His face will be turned away. His hand of judgment will be stretched out against him. And although the result after it all will be salvation and glory, it's going to be more intense suffering than anyone has ever known in the history of humanity. And Jesus knows that this is coming. Jesus knows that what awaits him is the eternity of hell that you and I deserved condensed into a period of three hours as he bears the sin that you and I carry. 
And he says, now is my soul troubled. Yeah, of course it is. How can he bear all this? But what's the alternative? What's the alternative? Will he ask the Father to be saved from this hour? He considers the possibility, and then he rejects it. No, he says, that's the whole reason I'm here. This is the plan of God, which I agreed to before we even created the world. The whole reason I'm here is to do his will and accomplish his purpose. So he cries out and said, Father, glorify your name. And wonderfully, amazingly, the Father answers from heaven. It's only three times in his ministry that he does this. The Father answers from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. See, the Father is already glorified by Jesus' obedience all the way up to this point. Jesus has already glorified the Father through his obedience. And the Father promises the Son that he will again be glorified in his further obedience, even this most difficult obedience when he goes to the cross. Jesus can rest assured that he is doing the will of his Father. And in this way... The Father assures Jesus and comforts him and affirms him in his obedience. But also, and and Jesus says actually more importantly, the Father bears witness to those around, to those who are with Jesus. Because once again, like he did at Jesus' baptism, the Father sets his seal of approval upon him in front of all the world, saying again, this is my beloved son, this one. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, for the most part, the crowds misinterpret the voice. They don't don't understand it. Their minds can't take it in. John actually gives us the reason for this. Look down. It's not part of the text. We're not going to go this far. But look down at verse 37. We'll see why. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. It's talking about the crowd. The crowd that's like bringing him in as king, they still did not believe in him. Despite appearances, they still don't believe. And because their hearts are still closed, they cannot hear the voice of the Father bearing witness. But that doesn't matter to Jesus. He knows that he will soon fulfill God's purposes, even though it will be also through his death. And that leads us to consider the last way that Jesus will be glorified. Read in verse 30, please. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus will soon draw all to himself through his death. So now that Jesus has recommitted himself to his mission, he's able to speak confidently about the mission's outcome. Judgment is now upon the world. What does he mean by that? Well, Jesus' coming forces a division. All people... All people are about to be given a choice. Will they embrace the salvation that Jesus brings? Will they submit to him as king? Or will they not? 
God is offering himself to them in the person of Jesus. Will they have him? Will you? See, when the world condemned and crucified Jesus, the world thought it was passing judgment on him. But in reality, he was passing judgment upon the world. And passing judgment on the ruler of this world, Satan himself. See, the devil who successfully pulls off the death of the Son of God is going to find that he has only managed to crush Jesus' heel. And Jesus is about to crush his head. Judgment has come upon the world and the ruler of the world in the fact that Jesus is about to die. But there's hope in the midst of all this judgment. There's hope in the midst of the judgment. Because as Jesus is lifted up from the earth, as he's lifted up from the earth, and notice, please, the beautiful, intentional irony of Jesus' words. He's explaining the kind of death he's going to die. When you're crucified, you are lifted up in shame. You are lifted up from the earth. He's going to be lifted up to the shame of the cross. But of course, lifted up is also exaltation language, isn't it? It's also glory language. Because where is Jesus Christ, friends, when he's on the cross? He's exalted before the gaze of the whole world. The prophet says they will look upon the one whom they have pierced. And Jesus already has explained the significance of his being lifted up. He talks about it with Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. He says, as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So Jesus, lifted up from the earth, fixed there upon the cross in shameful and glorious death, he commands every gaze. He commands every eye. Everyone must look upon him and make a choice. There he is. And those who look upon him and say, yes, there he is. There's the Savior that God's provided for my sins. Isn't he glorious? Isn't he wonderful? He's more beautiful than anything in all the world. I will have him. I will serve him. I will follow him. I will lay down my life in his service. I will look to him and live. And men and women, boys and girls, sinners from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who will look on him and believe on him. He draws them. He draws them all to himself and gives them eternal life. And they will be with him forever in glory. Friend, what will you do with Jesus? I admit this is pretty wild stuff. He upends all our expectations. The God-man hanging on a cross... Paul calls this the foolishness of God and the weakness of God that the God-man would hang upon a cross. Jesus speaks of the shame that he's about to endure and calls it glory. He looks towards death and sees life in it. He's the king of the world, but he comes to his kingship through humiliation and suffering. 
It's like an ongoing, perpetual opposite day. Then he turns it and puts it on us and says, follow me. Serve me. Believe in me. Lose your life so that you may keep it. But try and hold on to your life, which means rejecting me and my offer, and you will die in your sins and perish forever. See, friend, your only hope is to give yourself to this crucified Savior. It is the only path that leads to glory. See, Jesus is already there. He's already arrived. His sufferings are now over. He has been raised to life and exalted, and he sits in glory at the right hand of the Father, but he offers you a place at his side. Only if only you will follow in his steps. Now, the crowd thought they had Jesus pegged. They thought they understood his mission, and they liked it. But Jesus did not allow them to define who he was. He did not allow them to define what he'd come to do. He insisted on defining the nature of his own mission. He was not there as the the conqueror of Rome. He was there as the Savior, the Redeemer. The same thing is true of us. Jesus is rather stubborn. He will resist any attempts by you to redefine him or to recast him in your own image or to bend him to your will. He's not willing to do any of those things. He insists on being the king. He will not relinquish that title to you or to me, to any. He insists that sin must be acknowledged and repented of and justly paid for by his blood. He insists that we submit to him and submit to his way of doing things. He insists that we cannot tread any other path than the path he has trod. We must go to glory by way of the cross. It's counterintuitive, but his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. You must submit yourself to him. And if you will have him, if you will have him, he offers himself to you freely. He offers to make you a part of his great harvest. He offers to include you in the Father's good purpose. He offers to draw you to himself that you might be with him forever. He was lifted up on that cruel cross in order to purchase that right for you. So I just close with this question. What will you say to him and to his offer? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are, we are grateful that you have provided such a glorious, beautiful Savior. We thank you that he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross so that we might know eternal life and everlasting glory. We acknowledge that he will not fit into any of our molds. We must fit into his mold. And we pray that we would. We pray that we would exercise faith in him because we would recognize in him everything that we've ever wanted, everything that we've ever needed. 
And that we must have him. Or we will die. We pray that we would take him for ourselves. Believe in him. Trust him. Serve him. Follow him. Suffer with him. That we might also be glorified with him. Help us not to reject that path, we pray. For those who still stand outside of Christ, Lord, I pray that you would bless them with a fresh glimpse of Jesus. That they would not close their ears once again to him. That they would not refuse him who speaks to them and offers them life. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.